This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Hello, this is Burdell. I'm currently sitting in my car in the parking lot after turning in my security badge, which starts my transition into civilian life after 20 years of active duty. Wow. This podcast was recorded at... 12.08 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, November 10th. Some things may have changed since the recording, including me, which now I'll have to figure out where to work in whatever my next job is. All right? Enjoy the show. Gosh, that's so well, thank cool. you for, for your, your service. service. Yes. And enjoy receiving retirement while also having another job. Exactly. Civilian life rocks now. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Claudia Grisales. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. And we're going to start the roundup today on Capitol Hill, where one senator made some big news yesterday. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. That's Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, someone who has been both a savior to Democrats and a thorn in their sides. Claudia, there were a lot of eyes on what he would do next. Uh, Is this a surprise? You know, in some ways, it is not even as shocking and surprising as it did feel yesterday, just in terms of the timing. But I've always had just one word in my mind that runs through it that a Republican once told me they called him a black box. So basically, expect the unexpected when it comes to Manchin. He's a bit of a lone wolf. He could make any kind of decision on any kind of topic. It's really going to be tied to a complex series of issues that he has going on in terms of kind of his unique position as being a Democratic senator from West Virginia who's been able to hold on to office this long and be as successful as he has been in his role for that state. And so there's been a lot of rumors about him taking on a potential presidential bid as an outsider. Um, and you have to wonder if, if that's the direction he's going to be heading in, if that if that potential is going to be even bigger now. Yeah, and there's a lot of progressives who are thrilled with this. You know, there's the idea that they no longer have to shape legislation around someone like Joe Manchin, uh, who has continuously sort of played like right. this legislative Hamlet over and over again, where he sort of was on one side of it, then not, then not, then on another side of it, uh, wanting to tamp this down or change this piece or whatever. The only thing I would say to that is, you know, I can understand that point of view, provided that Democrats keep the Senate. And he just really imperiled Democrats' chances of keeping the Senate because they're facing such a difficult uh, landscape and state of play in 2024 when it comes to the to the Senate. I mean, if you look at the uh, Cook Political Report, there are seven seats that are either toss up or lean right now that are Democratic seats. There are zero Republican seats in that. So a lot of defense, all defense right now for Democrats in 2024. And don't you think that if Manchin felt confident that he could win in deep red, super Trumpy West Virginia, 
that he would run again? Not necessarily. This is somebody I've interviewed him for uh, many years. I met him first, I think, in you know uh, 2010 or so. And he just would say over and over again how much he disliked being a senator, how he really liked being a governor, how he uh, you know just really didn't enjoy the Senate at all. And you know, so it's not totally surprising. And if somebody's gotten in his ear to convince him that he somehow would uh, be able to win the presidency, then, you know, I think that that's something that is a carrot for him to be able to lure him out of a place where he doesn't want to be and into more of an executive position. But I got to tell you, there really is no appetite for, you know, this magic middle, which we've talked about uh, Mm -hmm. over and over again. There just isn't this kind of agreement in the middle that's going to make someone like a Manchin uh, president in 2024. Right. We're really seeing a deterioration of that. When we look at Mitt Romney, who's also exiting the Senate, that middle is really disappearing quickly from the Senate. And it's clear that's what's made this really appetizing in terms of Manchin, considering other options now. In the abstract, voters will say, oh, we want people to work together. We, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we value moderates. And then they vote. Uh, and and it's super polarized. And they, they, you know, it's red team versus blue team. And like, there is no purple team jersey. Um, no. So there you have it. Let, let's talk uh, about the House uh, and uh, the new speaker, Mike Johnson. He's now been in the job for a couple of weeks. And Claudia... How is his honeymoon going? Right. This honeymoon is kind of an up and down honeymoon. Is it over? Are we still in it? If you would ask me a few days ago, <laughs> I would have said I would have said it's gone just in terms of just weighing all the infighting that we continue to see from a wing of the Republican Party. Some people refer to it as the the chaos caucus, if you will. Um, but when I look at how House Republicans at this very moment are trying to get behind Johnson in terms of a bit of a wild idea in terms of how to fund the government, he's looking at something that's being termed a ladder CR. It's kind of a two-step temporary funding plan. It had multiple stops along the way. We're used to just one solid date, as in November 17th is a government shutdown deadline approaching next. But this would put in multiple dates for potential shutdowns of pieces of the government. It's very complicated. And an idea like that previously would have been shot down super fast. And there were grumblings about it in terms of how confusing and how it could lose leverage for Republicans. And just seeing that idea still be being kept alive, Johnson keeping his uh, plans for what this temporary funding measure could look like under wraps still to this day with just a few days to go before this deadline on the 17th is telling me that Republicans are still trying to stay in this honeymoon period as of this moment. But we'll see. Next week could break it up really quick. Yeah, I mean, there's a week left until the government runs out of funding. And, you know, when you've got a week left on your honeymoon, (laughs) you know, there's really only like a few days here left before he's got to start thinking about the flight home. And, uh, you know, we're talking middle of this. And who's going to empty the dishwasher later? Mm -hmm. Did you, uh, you know, clean the litter box before you left? Uh, You know, what's waiting for you in the sink if you didn't uh, tidy up? I don't know how long we're going to take this metaphor out. But the fact is he's (laughs) facing some real problems if they don't get 
get something passed on the 17th. And there's going to be a lot of stories that start to be written about how this quote unquote, you know, consensus candidate uh, from Republicans who moderates liked, who conservatives liked, couldn't figure out how to govern with Democrats who also run the Senate and have the White House. Well, and let's just say that this laddered continuing resolution idea um, is very much untested. And the reaction from the Senate and the White House, both Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, mind you, is uh, no, that's not going to (laughs) work. So um, even if it could pass the House, that's probably not going to be where things end up. You never know. There could be negotiations. But um, House Republicans have said that What they really want is regular order. They want to pass these government funding bills that fund various agencies, these big bills. This week, two of them were supposed to come up for a vote, and they had to pull both of them because they didn't have the votes among Republicans. Right. These are the warning signs. This is these are the cracks in the veneer. These are the worrisome uh, setbacks that Republicans have seen this week. This is one of their first full weeks working together like this. Their hours, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but they are going from early in the morning to late at night. So they're trying to push really hard. This was one of the complaints from uh, House Republicans with under former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. They were not at the House enough. So they are doing that piece. But in terms of figuring out a pathway to close the deal on these appropriations bills, Bills. It's unclear if they can get there. And that is the theme when I was talking to some of these folks who've been engaged in fights within the conference and those who have not outside of it who have been concerned about members attacking each other still as Johnson is speaker, um, is that they're worried that this has taken the oxygen out of those efforts. And they say the way to get back on the same page to continue to unify is to do work together and pass bills together on the floor. And the less they do that, the more that threatens the conference in terms of progress they'll make moving forward and Johnson's speakership. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Claudia, Grab some water or a snack, and we'll bring you back for Can't Let It Go. More in a second. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast, On Investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. 
If you're looking for a new way to support this show and public media, please consider signing up for the NPR Plus podcast bundle. NPR Plus listeners get to unlock sponsor-free listening and bonus episodes from NPR shows like this one. You can find out more at plus.npr.org. And we're back. And let's bring in Ashley Lopez, who covers voting. Hey, Ashley. Hey there. There were elections this week. Ohio voters decided to enshrine access to abortion in the state constitution. Kentucky reelected its Democratic governor, even though it's a red state. Virginia's legislature went Democratic. And in all of those places, abortion was either directly or indirectly on the ballot. So, Domenico, what were your lessons from this? It certainly seems that in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, the the issue of abortion remains salient even as we get farther away from that decision. Yeah, I think that's the big takeaway. I mean, you know, Democrats really, really, really use the issue of abortion across the country, you know, even in Virginia, where the state legislature was up for grabs. Every single ad that you saw really on the Democratic side had to do mostly with abortion rights. In fact, across the country, according to Ad Impact, who we have a partnership with, uh, which tracks ads, more than 350,000 abortion related Ads were uh, run on television or online, Uh, three quarters of those by Democrats, more than $90 million on the issue. Um, Republicans tried to counteract that with crime and really to not much avail. You know, they're really sort of trying to win over, in particular, women in the suburbs who care about the abortion rights issue. And they thought that crime would be a thing that that could maybe offset some of that. And once again, really, they were wrong and failed on that. And Democrats feel pretty good about this issue set, again, being uh, on their side. Yeah, it's like they re-ran the 2022 midterms election strategy, and the results were similar. Yeah, because, you know, usually these kinds of electorates in an off year with a with a Democrat in the White House, Republicans, you would think, would be the ones who would be fired up. And we've said that now repeatedly during the Biden presidency that it's been the opposite. Yeah. So, Ashley, given that this abortion issue is still really driving voters, and maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that, but Mm -hmm. um, given that it is still really driving voters – Across party lines at times, we're hearing now that Democrats and pro-abortion rights groups are are planning to focus on the issue even more, trying to get more ballot measures on the ballot for 2024. Yeah, so... For sure, we know there are going to be ballot measures in Maryland and New York on this issue, but there are some potential measures in the works in, I think, some pretty interesting states. Advocates are in key states like Florida and Arizona collecting signatures right now for measures on their ballots that would enshrine abortion rights in their state constitution. Actually, when I was in uh, South Florida earlier this week and went to Trump's rally, I was as I was leaving, I saw a volunteer with Planned Parenthood who was holding a clipboard and asking for signatures, which I thought that was a pretty interesting venue. And so I was just curious. I asked her, I'm like, you know, has anyone actually signed these signatures and she uh, uh, giving you their signature? And she said that, yes, actually, some folks who attended a Trump rally uh, wow. told her that they didn't personally agree with abortion, but they had some serious issues with the current bans that were passed in Florida recently. Wow. I think right now the state's conservative Supreme Court is deciding whether to uphold an existing 15 week ban on the procedure. But as everyone knows, earlier this year. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a six-week ban. So I think if the court upholds that 15-week ban, they get a six-week ban right after. So um, I think this is a place where, like, obviously this issue is front and center. And in Arizona, advocates there are collecting signatures as well for 
um, a measure that would ensure people have access to abortions up to 24 weeks, which is kind of what it was before, uh, obviously, the Dobbs decision. And I mean, there are also states like Colorado, Nevada, Nebraska also gathering signatures. And, you know, also, I will say on the other side, there are folks wanting to put ballot measures uh, for 2024 that would clarify that there is no right to the procedure in their state. Iowa is definitely one of the states that's going to have that question in front of voters. Yeah, I mean, you know, considering all of the vulnerabilities of President Biden right now and certainly a lot of the discussion that's taken place around his age, which continues to be a thing that a lot of people talk about, you know, these polls that came out showing him losing to uh, former President Trump in several swing states. You know, this is one avenue, at least a a couple of Democratic strategists I talked to this week said that this showing the salience of abortion rights and these ballot initiatives, there's going to be a real push and a real effort to put abortion on the ballot in key swing states to really be able to help boost some of Biden's turnout to keep that coalition together. Right. And and the list of states that Ashley just mentioned includes Nevada, Arizona, Florida. These are all states that Democrats want to win. uh, And certainly with Arizona and Nevada states that Democrats need to win um, in order for President Biden to be reelected. Well, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like if you have two candidates right now, the leading candidates for each party are people that voters largely don't like. If you put the focus on an issue, it tends to be very helpful for, you know, especially Democrats in this case, because this is an issue where the majority of the public is mostly on their side. So, I mean, I'm not surprised at all that this is like a, a, you know, a strategy at the very least from at least advocates on this side to put um, the measure to 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 voters next year in an election where they know uh, they're going to be candidates that a lot of people don't like on the ballot. Yeah. And Ashley, we we talked about Governor Andy Beshear winning re-election in Kentucky. He's a Democrat in a red Mm -hmm. state. But you were saying that you saw something even more interesting that happened down ballot. Yeah, I was most interested in the re-election of their Secretary of State, Republican Michael Adams. I mean, the general election was not quite as interesting, but the fact that he was re-elected after the primary he went through uh, with two Republican state lawmakers uh, who were election deniers. I mean, I think there is what I've been seeing is a, like a larger trend of election deniers overall not doing too well in races across the country. Um, now, I think secretary of state elections are particularly important because usually these are the folks, the folks in those roles are like the chief elections officer in their state. So how they view what happened in 2020 is very relevant. Adams had been publicly saying that the election was not stolen. Yeah, he had been saying this like throughout his entire primary that he did not agree with his opponents who believed the election was stolen. You know, he didn't like beat around the bush at all about it. He said he did not agree with his party at all on this issue. And he won. He won his primary and um, he has continued to you know, discuss this issue. He's not shy about saying that the 2020 election was not stolen, which is interesting for a Republican. I'm going to keep an eye on this because right now what we're seeing like after the 2022 election is that on average, Republicans who are not election deniers are doing better when matched up against election deniers. But, um, you know, it's it's hasn't been enough time to fully get a data set on that. But so far, that's what we're seeing, which I think is interesting. Let's turn to another topic, which is candidates that are neither Democrats nor Republicans. (laughs) Jill Stein announced that she is trying to be the Green Party's presidential candidate for a third cycle. She was at the top of their ticket in 2012 and 2016 and 
got a lot of blame from Democrats uh, for Hillary Clinton losing the election in 2016. Uh, She joins academic Cornell West and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as third party challenges um, to both Biden and the eventual GOP nominee, which at the moment looks like Trump. Um, And then there's Joe Manchin, who we were talking about earlier, who does not seem to be ruling out a third party run of his own. And he spent a lot of time with a group called No Labels. Domenico, that's like a lot of third party action. You know, I've been saying for a little bit now that I would it's hard. It's very hard for me to see how Donald Trump gets more than 47 percent of the vote. I mean, he didn't in 2016. He did not in 2020. Um, So what he would need is really a third party, some third party help to sort of widen the pathway for him. And it looks like he might be getting it. You know, in 2016, it was about 7% of the vote that went third party. And with uh, disaffection being as high as it is now, certainly there are a lot of Democrats worried it could get that high again, because in 2020, it was less than 2% of the vote as the Democratic base kind of coalesced and realized that in order to take Trump out of office, they needed to get behind Biden. And right now, with again, with disaffection, being as high as it is, you know, Biden's base looks like it could fray with some of these uh, third party candidates. I mean, if you think about where they fit in, um, you know, Manchin really gets a lot of these could, you know, threaten to get a lot of these anti-Trump moderates. Uh, Cornell West certainly has some appeal with black voters. And you think about a state like Georgia, where that could be hugely important. Young voters. I mean, think about Jill Stein and how she decided to announce her run, saying that there needed to be a ceasefire in Gaza, something that young voters in the Democratic Party are in favor of, but older voters in the Democratic Party less so. So really sort of all of these groups that need to be behind Biden for Biden to be able to win really threatened by a lot of these potential third party candidacies. Well, and then to counterbalance it, you have RFK Jr., who has become something of a darling of right wing podcasts. Um, A lot of his bases come from there. Yeah, I don't know if it's a counterbalance, though, to those. Right. I think that RFK Jr. draws from both Biden and from Trump. I mean, he is a Kennedy. He's got that very famous last name, um, you know, and he obviously does have some of the younger right wing folks uh, because of a lot of his uh, stances on vaccinations. He's really been against vaccinating uh, children in a lot of cases. So, you know, how he draws is going to be is going to be interesting to watch. The data really isn't clear right now on 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 how much he pulls from either party. And the other question that I have is ballot access. The Green Party has done a decent job of maintaining ballot access. RFK Jr. has a lot of money. Cornell West, it's not clear that he has a little the ability to get on a lot of ballots, it's actually not that easy to get on the ballot. Um, And No Labels is saying that they're going to try to get ballot access all over the country. So I guess we'll it's it's early and and we'll see how much of a factor they ultimately end up being versus how they're showing up in the polls now. We're going to leave it there for now. Ashley, we are cutting you loose. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we're going to take one more break. And when we get back, it is time for Can't Let It Go. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. 
Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLlearning.com. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. And we're back. And so is Claudia Casales. Hello again. Hey there. It is time for Can't Let It Go, the part of the pod where we talk about the things from the week that we just cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Claudia, you first. Well, what I cannot let go of is I got to do something that you're a little familiar with, Tam. And so my day job is covering the hill, of course, but sometimes we get to take a detour. Like yesterday, uh, the White House team needed someone to do radio pool for the White House for Air Force One travel with the president. And so I had done it once before last year. I was very rusty. Um, But it was a great experience. I was so excited to do it again. And we are grateful that you were able to step in and help (laughs) us out. Super grateful. I loved it because one in part, this happened last year and again this year, is I got to do a lift, which is on an Osprey. Yeah, and an Osprey is not a helicopter. It is a tilt rotor aircraft that's sort of like part plane, part helicopter. It feels super weird. Basically, there should be Osprey parks. That's all I'm saying. Everyone needs to ride an Osprey. But I'm glad you enjoyed your ride. I loved it. I I could scream on the Osprey yesterday like a roller coaster ride, and no one could hear me because it's It's that loud. loud. Yeah, and I don't even put on my seatbelts now. I don't know if I'm asking for trouble, but I'm just like so. I think so. I think you need to put the seatbelt. You know, I've never been on an Osprey, but I have been on a helicopter a couple of times. And, uh, you know, the perspective and the agility is really interesting. I took one over the Grand Canyon and it was definitely the way to see it. That's for sure. It's beautiful. So, Domenico, what can't you let go of? You know, what I can't let go of is back to sort of politics a little bit, but it's John Fetterman and his sort of the way he's been, you know, lately. You know, I think a lot of people saw him and saw a lot of the attention he'd gotten after his stroke and uh, coming to Congress and, you know, his struggles, as he talked about with mental health and depression and kind of trying to get better with his speech patterns. You know, we saw the highly publicized debate that he had against Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, which Fetterman won. But what he's been doing lately has been a very provocative support of Israel. He was seen waving an Israeli flag at Palestinian protesters. He has posters in his office now that are lining the walls of people who'd been kidnapped by Hamas. He's obviously in a very provocative way trying to show what he believes the Democratic Party should stand for. And we've seen this fracture uh, happening on some portions of the Democratic base that are really sort of threatening Biden's, um, you know, re-election chances in 2024 because it's a tough spot to be in. But he's just been a fascinating 
person to watch. And I just wonder, Claudia, you seeing him on Capitol Hill, what, what you've seen of him in the in these months since uh, he's won re-election. Yeah, it's really interesting watching his evolution as a politician on the Hill. You know, he just brings that, you know, Pennsylvania energy. And in terms of just even like the dress code, you know, that was, you know, to, he drew a lot of attention in terms of his casual dress, became this big conversation. And also his ability to maneuver, you know, through these kind of just medical challenges he's had, but come back again and again. And every time he comes back to the Hill, it just seems like he he's coming more more into his own in terms of just talking to reporters, for example. We weren't able to access him before as much, and now it's a different case. He's very much willing to talk to us, keep us posted. He's so outspoken about so many different issues, including this one recently. So it's just really interesting to see where he is and also kind of this split screen. We also saw that yesterday traveling with the president in terms of all these protests all over the country and Chicago included where people are yelling, Biden, Biden. And you can't hide just calling for this ceasefire. So it is this piece of split in this portion of the Democratic wing is developing. And, and Fetterman's like one of those symbols there in terms of where we can see that happen. Also fascinating is that he has been so vocal in calling for his fellow Senator Bob Menendez, who right. has been indicted, calling for him to resign. Not only that, but he also uh, was out there speaking about the presidential election and saying that he's supporting Biden and he wishes that these other candidates would be honest about the fact that they're actually running. He said at least Dean Phillips is and then called out Gavin Newsom, the California governor, mm-hmm. um, even though Newsom says that he's not running and that he's uh, fully, fully endorsed. Biden. Wow. So, Tam, what can't you let go of? I can't let go of the pandas. Uh, well, or, <laughs> you need to because they're gone. Yeah. Or more accurately, <laughs> I can't let go of the coverage of the departure of the pandas. So just a little background. Well, here in Washington, D.C., we have been letting go. We have been saying our goodbyes, a very extended goodbye to the pandas who have lived for many years at the National Zoo. However, All pandas actually belong to China and are just on loan from China. And China has recalled their ambassadors. Panda diplomacy at this moment has has ceased at the National Zoo. And so yesterday, the pandas left. And the pandas left in these FedEx trucks with pandas emblazoned on the side. And there was play-by-play at every stop from NBC4 Washington that is just remarkable, starting at the gates of the zoo. Well, there they go. We know that at least the order they went into the trucks and into the crates, we had Mei Zhang first, then Tian Tian, and the baby cub, Chow Chi Ji, bringing up the rear. So maybe the, that's the order they're in right now. Yeah. Maybe. Who knows? But let's speculate. Oh, my gosh. And then... They follow them. They've got helicopters. They've got people at the airport. Sounds like it was pandemonium. I'm trying to catch a glimpse. Oh, there's his face. Oh, man. Oh, oh my gosh. Can you see it, you guys? Goodbye. Oh, Oh, my gosh. He's peering out. That's precious. Let me tell you, I love the zoo. But the number of times I've seen the pandas actually come out or do anything, I could count on one hand. Agree. And, you know, they and what do they do? They just sit there, roll around, maybe chew on some bamboo. I don't know. I know. I agree. The crowds. I don't know. I've looked out. We've seen them every time when we've gone. But it's huge crowds. And then you get there. It's a little anticlimactic. Like, okay, I'm just watching this. They are very fuzzy and cute. They're still bears. They are. I, I prefer the tigers. 
honestly, the lions. Yeah. The ro- if you've heard the roar of the lion at the zoo, yeah. that's a shocking thing. Yeah. Maybe China will put up a panda cam. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right, that's all for this week. Our executive producer is Mathani Maturi. Casey Morell edits the podcast. Jung Yoon Han produces it. Thanks to Krishna Dev Kalamar and Lexi Shapittle. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Claudia Grisales. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.